0: To Life Church Podcast with Pastor David All right, are we good? Hey, Azara and Harper, that was fantastic. And I thought I was good at puppets. Uh, I, think we've, I think we know who the replacements are. Uh, thank you for that message, Jeannie, as well. Really appreciate it. Um, here we are back in our sermon series in the Gospel of John, part 32 today. So it seems like we'll be in John's gospel forever, and maybe Jesus will come back before, and hopefully he'll finish the series, but we're going to keep going uh, into John's gospel all the way almost till Easter, uh, and uh, it's, it's starting to get really intense here in the story. Um, obviously, we've got the holidays coming up, right? Uh, that's the next big thing in front of us, and one of the things we look forward to with the holidays is awkward family conversations. Right, especially during these times, it doesn't take much to bring up that thing, that topic, that conversation that you know you shouldn't have brought up, but then it just gets really quiet. Right, maybe kids, you've done this before, you didn't know you weren't supposed to bring up that tense subject, and you just asked grandpa who he voted for or whatever, and then all of a sudden it got really quiet. And that's exactly what's going on in our passage today. Uh, we have Jesus, I mean, just imagine it with me, picture it with me, him and his disciples are reclining to eat because that's how they did it in the Middle East back then when they were having a feast. They're having the feast of the Passover, so their, their feet are behind them, they're leaning on their left elbows and eating with their right hands, and just as the mashed potatoes and gravy is going around, Jesus says, when he's about to betray me, and it just got really quiet, like it got so quiet you could hear a pin drop, so quiet that... Even Peter had nothing to say. Like, when Peter's quiet, you know, it's an awkward moment. And he actually motions to John, the beloved, who's sitting next to Jesus. He's like, John, ask him who it is. We don't know who it is. Like, ask him. And so John leans back. The translations literally say he, he leaned back into the chest of Jesus, which would suggest John was to Jesus' right. right. So he's, he's reclining like this, and he kind of leans back and says, Jesus, who is it? who's the one? And then Jesus whispers right back to John, it's the one I give this morsel to when I've dipped it. Some translations call this act the dipping of the sop, which in that day was a way to communicate close friendship and love, to take a tasty piece of bread or a a morsel of meat and dip it into some sauce and give it to your buddy, which sounds disgusting, all right? especially today, uh, and especially to all of you germaphobes. But I think that's all of us now, having lived in a pandemic for a year, we're like, no, don't do that, Jesus. Like, that's not COVID-19 approved behavior. You can't do that. But this is what Jesus is doing. He takes this sop and he gives it to Judas, who's likely on his left, which was a place of honor. And he says, what you're going to do, do quickly. And clearly the rest of the disciples didn't hear this little exchange that Jesus had with John. So they're whispering to one another, Because John tells us that the rest of the disciples thought maybe he went out. Judas had the money bag. He was the CFO. He maybe went out to buy what they needed for the feast or to give to the poor, which is a regular practice for Jews during the Passover time. And then John, as this master storyteller, ends his story with this, just brilliant, by saying, Judas went out immediately, and it was night. It's brilliant contrast of light versus darkness. The the evil is intensifying and the good is intensifying. It's almost like the, the, the outside environment is matching the environment of Judas's heart. And I'll admit, this is a troubling story. It's really troubling. The text tells us here that Jesus was troubled in his spirit, verse 21, by what was about to take place. And so we're no less troubled by what's going on here. And there's a ton in this short passage I want to look at seven things that we learn from this tragic story about Judas. Four things, three things we learn about Judas, four things we learn about Jesus, okay? And so the first obvious thing we learn is you never trust financial people, right? So Eric, Eric's not here. Uh, Yvette, obviously, we're not trusting you anymore based on this story. No, that's not one thing we learn about Judas. Actually, it's exactly the opposite. One thing we learn, and I appreciate how Jeannie pointed this out, it's hard to spot a Judas, It's not easy to spot a Judas. That's the first thing. It's hard to spot a Judas. Put another way, it's hard to spot a real Christian from a fake Christian. Um, There's this example I read this past week. Did you know that in many slaughterhouses where sheep are slaughtered, they have a Judas sheep? I didn't know this. I didn't know this. Because sheep, you know, they're not very smart. But when they get to the slaughterhouse, something tips them off that this isn't, they're not being brought to another pasture, right? They know this is not good. There's concrete everywhere. And so they often not get off the truck. Sorry for all you animal lovers, this part's a little tough. And so what they'll do is they'll just stand there. But then the slaughterhouse has this sheep that lives there, and and obviously they take great care of the sheep, and it gets comfortable there. And so they'll walk the sheep up on the gangplank, and then the other sheep in the truck see the sheep, the Judas sheep, and they say, oh, it's obviously safe, this sheep likes it here. So then they follow the Judas sheep back down into the slaughterhouse and to their deaths. And this is a real deal. That's because it's hard to spot a Judas. The sheep can't tell the difference between a Judas sheep and a real sheep. And a lot of times it's hard for us to see that as well. Judas was probably, I want you to see this, the last guy they thought that would do this. Probably the last guy. I mean, isn't it interesting that all the disciples are looking at each other like, who is it? Is it me? I mean, there's 12 of us. We have an 8% chance. I guess it could be me. They didn't know. You know, they're all wondering, they're all thinking. Judas was the CFO. He was the accountant, the person who keeps the money bag. And let me just ask you, who do you usually trust the money with? Usually, it's the most trustworthy person. You're like, okay, who's the most organized? Who's the most steady? Who's the most stable person? Well, it's obviously Judas. Give him the money, right? So they trusted Judas. And Judas obviously had a shadow life. He's covert. Nobody really knows who he is, So what we have here is not a case of someone losing their faith, but we have a case of a person pretending to have faith. And sadly, that sort of thing happens. And this case with Judas really bothers me. It bothers me on so many levels theologically, but it really bothers me because Judas had probably the best opportunity of anyone, right? I mean, think about it. Judas went to Jesus Christ Seminary for three years. All of his classes were taught by Jesus Christ. Every question that he asked was answered by Jesus Christ. All of the meals that he ate for three years were probably eaten with Jesus, you know? I mean, this guy had a front row seat to all of Jesus' sermons and miracles. There's no question in his mind that Jesus is the real deal. And yet, his heart is hard, and he still intends to do what is evil. He didn't love Jesus at all. Judas was a fake, John's let us in on this a few times throughout his gospel but you notice John is writing that in retrospect John doesn't know that either at the time until Jesus lets him in on it here at the supper. And here's the big deal for us. Do you know that the Bible and especially Jesus in the gospel speaks to this quite often how many times he says to you and I you just might be a fake. You might not be the real deal. It's going to be a lot of surprise, according to Jesus, on the last day. I think one of the most terrifying passages in all of Scripture is Matthew 7, where Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, meaning the last day, judgment day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you, depart from me. You workers of lawlessness. So you see the surprise there. I don't know about you, but I've never performed mighty miracles. I've, I've not prophesied very much. I've not cast out any demons. These people fit into a different category than me. And yet on that day, Jesus will look at them and say, no, no, I never knew you. Depart from me. Think of the parable of the sheep and the goats in Matthew 25. Both groups are surprised at the result. Both groups it can be very difficult to tell the difference between a fake Christian and a real Christian. And you and I shouldn't automatically assume we fall into the category of real Christians. In fact, I believe that real Christians in this passage are the ones examining themselves thoroughly at this moment. That's what the disciples are doing, which brings me to my next point. We're not above Judas. Right? It's hard to spot a Judas, but we're also not above being a Judas. Notice here, all the disciples are asking themselves, is it me? Is it me? You know, Peter's motioning to John to ask Jesus because deep down I think he knows it could be me. Like, I think Peter knows, like, he's not as strong as he comes across. And certainly we're going to see Peter fall in just two weeks. So before we get too judgmental here about Judas, we need to understand that apart from the grace of God, apart from the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts, all of us could be a Judas. Each one of us could be a Judas. Judas as the disciples of Jesus, as disciples of Jesus, we need to be asking the same question that his disciples were asking, Lord, would I betray you? Or maybe better yet, like Jeannie saying, what would I betray you for? What would, I, what would I sell Jesus off for? There's an old saying, usually you hear it from people who have been in sales their whole life, everybody has a price, right? Or everything's for sale, it just matters the price. Judas's price was 30 pieces of silver. So in that day, that was about 120 days wages for a day laborer, or 120 denarii. In today's equivalent, that could be about $20,000. Scholars are kind of all over on the map uh, of how much that is. But for Judas, it was about $20,000. So everybody has their price. I'm wondering, what is yours? See, I've, I've sat with lots of people who claim to be Christians, but then they find out like, oh, Jesus asked me to do that? no, I'm not going to do that. That's too much. That's too much commitment. Like, I, I like to go to church every now and then and, and be, you know, classified as a Christian or be, be thrown in that category, especially the holidays. It's kind of nice for my family, but that's, too, that's way too much. See, Jesus doesn't allow us to keep him as somewhat important, right? If Jesus isn't of utmost importance to you, then I would argue he's of no importance whatsoever. Like He doesn't allow himself to stay in that middle ground because he knows if he's of just moderate importance to you, it's only a matter of time before that thing comes along that's really important and you sell him off. You betray him for that thing. Like your career, your social status, or money, or a relationship, or that sin habit that you insist on keeping. This is why people following Jesus, the crowds following Jesus, so often left Disappointed. They so often just couldn't take it. Like they saw the cost of discipleship before them, and they're like, no, no, I can't do that. To the point where Jesus even looked at his own disciples and said, do you guys want to leave too? Think of the rich young ruler, you know, this passage. I mean, obviously, he wanted to follow Jesus. He was inquiring about what he must do. And Jesus said, yeah, sure, there's just one more thing. Why don't you go sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and come follow me? And he's like, oh, no. No, no. He sold Jesus off kept his money. That's what he did. I'm wondering, what is that thing for you? And I really don't think it's that hard to figure out, honestly. It just boils down to what is your idol, honestly? What's that thing in your life that's bigger than God? John Calvin taught that the human heart is an idol factory, just always cranking out idols, just always wanting to put something in the place of God. And so we all struggle with this to a certain degree. And kids, how many of you, what comes to your mind when you think of an idol? Just yell it out. What's that? Cow. A cow? Yeah, like the golden calf. Yes, absolutely. Very good, Eden. Yeah, we think of, like, we think of the, the, the things that the Israelites sculpted or that the, the pagan nations around them sculpted to worship. But what we don't realize is all those idols they had represented things. They represented things like fertility or, or um, financial stability through crops and rain and those kinds of things. All those gods represented certain things to them. So we all have the same gods. They haven't changed over the thousands of years. Their gods just represented certain things, whereas we just, we just have them outright. So God, an idol is anything that you make that's more important than God. And there are often good things that have become God things, good things that have become ultimate things. It's, an idol is anything that you say, this thing is more fundamental to my life and happiness than Jesus. It's that thing, whatever you say, hey, without that thing, my life is not worth living. That's an idol. Um, that's what you would sell Jesus off for, quite simply. And another way to think about it is just to think, is Jesus the end all by himself that you're seeking, or is he a means to getting your end? And I love how Jeannie and the girls brought this out so beautifully this morning, because for Judas, Judas's God was money. And so he was willing to trade Jesus off. He was willing to betray Jesus in a moment once he could get his true God. So Jesus became a means to getting his real end, to getting the thing that he really wanted. And the same thing will happen for you. Like, you'll follow Jesus until he's getting in the way of your real thing that you really want. And then you'll sell him off. All of us need to, to check our hearts here today because we are not above Judas. That's the second point we learn. Thirdly, we learn Satan is the source of all evil, but Judas becomes filled with Satan. Now, verse 27, John's made a point of telling us earlier in this chapter that Satan had whispered the idea of betraying Jesus into Judas's mind and heart, but now John tells us that Satan actually entered Judas. I want to talk about a problem. I mean, this is what happens. It's not a popular belief, but Christians believe in a real personal devil a real personal spiritual being that we call Satan. We believe he has evil intentions all the time and that he's working with his servants on all people, Christians and non-Christians. He's working in them. And maybe this actually helps you to understand the world around you. Like when you look at things and you're like, oh, how could a person do that? Well, this this is how. Because Satan fills people, right? And this isn't... You know, to make us, uh, we're not supposed to be superstitious, you know, overly obsessed with the devil and Satan, and we're not supposed to be substitious as Christians, you know, just, and just ignoring him or pretending like he doesn't exist. We believe that the Holy Spirit lives in Christians, and greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world, amen? Like, we don't have to be afraid of him, but this does help us to understand, like, we're in a real spiritual battle. When evil stuff happens, it's not just because Judas got this idea all by himself. There is a real enemy that was really plotting. He really thought he had the upper hand here, and it turns out the joke's on him. But greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. So Satan's the source of the evil, but people can become filled with him. Fourthly, Jesus is sovereign in the midst of the evil. Um, I love that Jeannie brought this out as well. This is another reminder. We've, we spent a whole sermon on this. I don't, I'm not going to take a lot of time on it today. But in verse 18 of chapter 13, just a few verses earlier, um, we read this last week, Jesus quotes Psalm 41, 9, and this is a prophecy about how he would be betrayed by a close friend. Hundreds of prophecies, by the way, came true in Jesus. It's amazing how many prophecies when you start looking at them, but this is one of them too, that Jesus would be betrayed by a close friend, a friend that he would eat bread with. Isn't that interesting? Interesting. And obviously, we see that Jesus knows this ahead of time, which is incredible, how Jesus could love someone and serve someone, wash their feet, be with them every day, knowing for three years that they were going to betray him. But he did. He knew this was what was needed for the scriptures to be fulfilled. He knew how it all fit together in God's great rescue plan for the world. And so we see that Jesus knows all about it. Judas isn't a surprise to Jesus, and he's sovereign in the midst of it, he's turning it for the greatest good the world's ever known. Fifthly, Jesus knows what it means to be betrayed. He knows what it means to be betrayed. You know, some of you have been really close to someone who used their closeness to stab you in the back. Like they got just close enough that they could inflict some really big wounds on you. And humans just can be so cruel to each other, can't they? It's unbelievable, really. Jesus wants you to know That he understands. He gets it. For some of you, this is um, a parent, you know, a mom or a dad. For some of you, this is a son or a daughter. For some of you, this is the person that you were married to. Some of you, this is the person that you are married to. Uh, For some of you, uh, this is a close relative or a friend. For some of you, this is a ministry professional or a counselor, someone who got close to you. And when they got close to you, they used that closeness to abuse you, to hurt you, um, to betray you in some way, to stab you in the back. And, you know, in those times of processing that difficulty and that pain, it can be really easy to say, well, what's God going to do in this? He doesn't get what it's like to be in my situation. And Jesus would say, oh, yes, I do. I know exactly what it's like to be there. He's experienced it. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 says, For we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So Jesus gets the pain of betrayal like any of us. He's walked that path so you can run to him with your pain. He's not going to be dismissive about it. He's not going to be like, oh, stop sniffling about that. He's going to be like, no, I get it. It hurts. Me too. You're not the only one. So Jesus understands what it's like to be betrayed. Sixthly, Jesus opened himself to being close with others. I think this is so stunning in this passage. It's unmistakable. The contrast of true friendship versus counterfeit friendship which we saw with the puppets up here today, but it's stark in this passage, isn't it? You know, John describes himself here as the disciple whom Jesus loved, which is a great title to give yourself, right? I always think every Christian should give yourself that title. I'm the one that Jesus loves. You can do that safely, and it's the most it's the most effective identity you could ever have. I'm the one who loves Jesus and who Jesus loves. And uh, the text literally says he leaned back against Jesus chest the same language Jesus used to describe his intimacy with the father the whispers between John and Jesus. We just all of it just shows us that Jesus didn't protect himself from closeness. And this is tough for those of us who have been betrayed, isn't it? This is tough you know, our lives can tend to be, become closed off. We get wounded and we get gun-shy and, and we, we get to the place where we're just like, ah, I, just, I don't think I should get close to people anymore. I remember um, some time ago having this long prayer walk with the Lord and I was just struggling to really connect with Him and get close to Him. And I was like, what's going on, Lord? And I felt like He gave me this picture in my mind that my, of my heart and it like had this stone covering around it. I'm like, well, that's a huge problem. You know, what's, what's that all about? And it was just like, you know, I had been hurt by some things in the past. And in order to prevent myself from being hurt again, I had like started to put this thing around my heart, even subconsciously. But the Lord's like, look, this isn't just keeping you safe. It's also keeping you from experiencing my love, right? C.S. Lewis says this in his book, The Four Loves, that to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. You know, many of us can resonate with that. Like, we got, we, got we, we loved deeply, but we got hurt. And so our natural first inclination is to pull back and to protect ourselves. But what Lewis is pointing out here is that that isn't God's plan for us either. right? And obviously, God's not saying just throw your heart around with anyone and everyone and just trust everyone. No, it's not that. You know, Proverbs says, guard your heart. It's the wellspring of life within you. But as Christians, our first commitment cannot be to self-protection. It just can't be. In fact, that was one of the things God showed me is that the sin of self-protection is really a big sin. It really protects, the sin of self-protection really causes you not to obey Jesus by loving others and giving to the world as he's called you to give. And Jesus is the perfect human example in that he loves so fully, so freely, so recklessly, and he did that in the face of certain betrayal. I'm reading this, and I'm like, how in the world could he do that? Now, how in the world could he keep loving Judas? How in the world could he keep loving us when we've slapped him in the face so many times and turned our back on him and made him seem like he's just a footnote in our lives? Well, I think the final point speaks to this, how Jesus could do that, and that is that Jesus loved his enemies and invited them to be friends. Now, kids, how many of you are reading the Jesus Storybook Bible right now? The Jesus Storybook Bible by Sally Lloyd-Jones. We love that book. I've learned so much good theology from that book. And I I remember reading this to my girls and teaching it in the back there because we used to use that as our curriculum. And back then, Z, you were a little guy back then. I think uh, We'll see if you remember this, but you had a favorite story, and um, it was the story of Jesus' betrayal and arrest, but you didn't call it what Sally Lloyd-Jones calls it. You called it Jesus and the Bad Guys. And I remember reflecting on that title, like, huh, Jesus and the bad guys. And I thought, boy, now that's a a fantastic title for the whole Bible. Um, It's actually a fantastic title for all of human history, isn't it? Jesus and the bad guys, because there's all of us bad guys, deeply in need of a Savior, deeply broken to the core. And then there's one brilliant, bright, shining human Jesus. And he comes into the world, praise God, Emmanuel, God with us to rescue us, to love us, to heal us, and to invite us to move from enemies to friends. Let's go back to the beginning of of the sermon. Do you remember the act of dipping the sop, that gross act that we almost can't think about right now? Even the, the word sop, it kind of, oh, I just can't take it. But dipping of the sop, this morsel of bread or meat that Jesus offers Judas, well, like I mentioned, in that day, that was a sign of close friendship. Like, you did not do that with strangers, It was powerful communication that Jesus, fully knowing the plan in Judas's heart, fully knowing his intent, one last time he was saying, I love you, Judas. Do you want to come and be my friend? One last chance to move from being an enemy to a friend. And I just think Judas could have taken it. He could have taken it at that moment. He could have been like, oh, I just, I, sorry, Jesus, I just got to explain. I actually was planning to betray, I was planning to betray you this whole time. And Jesus would have said, I know. And he said, yeah, but you know, there's a group of soldiers waiting outside and they're probably going to take you and kill you. And Jesus said, I know. I love you and I forgive you. And I'm asking you, do you want to come back? Do you want to be my friend? But of course, Judas takes the sop, but he doesn't take what it represented. He doesn't take the love of Jesus and he hurries out into the dark to do his wicked plan. He didn't take his opportunity to turn from it, but God took the opportunity to take Judas's wicked plan, and he extended the offer of Jesus' sop to the rest of the world, to you and I. He took the bread of his son's broken body and the the wine of his shed blood, and he offered that to the whole world and said, here, would you like to come and be my friends? Would you like to move from being enemies to friends. One sermon I read called Judas, the last sopper, (laughs) which I thought, man, that's such a clever title. Why can't I come up with clever titles? But I actually disagree. Judas wasn't the last sopper. The sopping didn't stop with him. It was extended to the whole world, even to us. In Jesus, God invites each one of us to come from being enemies to being friends. And I don't know where this message finds you today. Maybe you're here and you're not a believer, And this is the first time you've seen this God and how he loves his enemies and how he invites you to move from enemy to friend. He's holding out the sop for you saying, would you like it? Would you like to come and and take it, move from an enemy to a friend today? And we would love to pray with you. If you're online, would you submit a form through the website? We'd love to get in contact with you. There will be prayer people up here afterwards to pray with you. We would invite you to come and take the sop and be Jesus' friend today and follow him. For others of us who are saying we follow Jesus, this is not a, a light and cheery sermon. I know that. Um, it's, not, it's been a heavy study this week. But I would ask that we would just take this moment to consider and, and to ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to me, what is it that's rivaling Jesus for the throne of my heart? What is it that I would dump Jesus off for? You know, those are powerful questions. They're important questions. And then I would ask that you would also remember this loving kindness of your Savior. That you would allow his, his extension of friendship and love, even in the midst of your wickedness and rebellion, that that would fuel you to love and devotion to him. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word. Lord, we're just stunned by your grace and your mercy that you're so good to us that you don't just love your friends, you love your enemies, and thankfully... Though we were enemies, you've invited us to become friends through your death and resurrection. And so, Jesus, we take our hope in that today. Um, We take our life in that today. Jesus, would you come and have the throne of our hearts again? Where there have been other things that have competed with it, would you take your rightful place? It's in Jesus' good name we pray. Amen.